You're listening to Startup and Onward, an ongoing conversation with product sales and marketing leaders working to align teams and supercharge growth. Join us as we give you an insider's look into the real-world experience of leaders seeking the growth stage by empowering their teams to navigate the Bermuda Triangle of product, marketing, and sales. I'm your host, Josh Taylor. Regardless what role you're in an organization, but especially in product, collaboration is so critical. And something that I think is one of the biggest drivers of a product manager's success is being able to understand the needs and the business objectives of their other key stakeholders. Hey, everybody. Excited for this week's episode. We sat down with Sam Veek. And uh, Sam's got a long background in product, marketing, a number of different organizations, but mostly in the health tech space. And we really unpacked a bit about how do you focus your team on responding to the needs of your customer. Uh, We talked a lot about diving past the request and uh, maybe even saying no, that dangerous word, no. And how do you do it in a way that's actually building value uh, and true collaboration with your customers? So excited for this episode. I think you get a lot out of it. Let's dive in. Sam, excited to see you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Just as a way of getting started, why don't you give us a background about your experience, career, and what's led you to what you're doing today? Sure. My background, I've mostly been in the health tech space for most of my career. I started at Deloitte as a consultant implementing technology solutions, and we were really working on a balance of people, process, and technology. So aligning those, that gave me a really good foundation for my career. I was able to work in a lot of industries and see how technology could move forward companies and really help them solve problems. From there, I went on to lead global projects. So I did a lot of project management. I had my PMP and I appreciated and I guess gained the expertise to just get stuff done and execute well against deadlines and expectations and such. And so that gave me just the respect to deliver and deliver to stakeholder expectations. But I found my love for commercial strategy as part of that because you know, oftentimes people run projects, but for what cause and what reason, like what's the why behind them? And that's what I really yeah. started to dig into, which led me to commercial strategy and commercial leadership opportunities. So since then, I've done a bit of leadership in both marketing and product. And now I am the chief product officer overseeing product management and actually engineering as well for a technology company in the life sciences space called Antidote. That's awesome. Yeah, you get, you've had a very uh, broad spectrum per view of all the things that can go right, can go wrong, can go slow, can go fast when it comes to product and marketing. I think you and I were talking earlier about just some of the, the knee-jerk reactions that are based on assumptions that are inside of organizations. And what have you found in all of your different positions has been helpful to prevent teams from making some of those knee-jerk reactions, or at least what are the pitfalls that you typically look for? It's a really good question. And I think it's something, as we've talked about, is I'm very passionate about because 
I've seen in every organization that I've been in and every role as well. And I think the one of the number one pitfalls is just making internally driven decisions on what is the highest priority and what you should be working on. And so the passion that's underlying it is to get validation and drive better decision-making to determine really what the priorities of the organization and what the product priorities should be as well. Because there's so many resources and so much time clogged up in not only that decision-making process, but then also the delivery upon it. And so in order to, you know, drive the highest value and the highest impact that a team can, we have to be validating assumptions, getting customer insights, understanding the data that should be driving ultimately the framework for how we're making those decisions. Yeah, I was going to say, it, when by validating, you're not saying arguing the loudest, I'm assuming, internally. <laughs> well, I mean, I was thinking about that earlier and how natural it is and easy it is to fall into the trap of listening to the loudest voices in the room. And if you think mm -hmm. about it, like... If you are working with your key stakeholders internally day in and day out, which many of us are, we're working with the business development team, we're working with marketing, we're working with the executives, that's who we're hearing all the time. And so naturally they become the loudest voices. And that's when we have to not turn down the volume of those, but really elevate and increase the volume of external. But we have to be really intentional about it because those conversations don't come naturally unless you are intentionally you know, forcing them. Do you find that it's, it can be threatening might be too strong of a word, but people may feel like they're losing their say in the business if you're going external versus using the stakeholder? Because oftentimes when you talk about this Bermuda Triangle between product marketing and sales, sales is out front, they're leading, they're, well, we're not able to sell because we don't have X, Y, Z. And if we're going to the market, it's just, instead of just listening to sales, sales may feel like, wait, you're not leveraging my insights. How do you avoid that? It's a really good question. I've not encountered any conflict or pushback in actually validating assumptions in the market. But I think the reason is that we're bringing those insights from the internal perspective to the market for feedback as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also bringing true customer problems and pain points and objectives and goals that the customer is trying to solve back into the business. And the best way to do that is by bringing the data and having conversations, both internally and externally. But it's oftentimes what I've seen the sales and or marketing teams when they bring, here's what we think you should be working on. Here's what we think the priorities should be. They're usually the solution and not the actual problem we're trying to solve. And so when we go external and try to validate what our priorities and such should be, if we're focused on the pain and the problem and truly what is what is the greatest problem we can solve for you, customer and or user, we can balance those with the solutions that are likely what we thought about internally or heard from customers. And so we take those two and we merge them. And that's ultimately what is going to drive the priority and what we should be working on. Do you feel that that's the biggest pitfall when it comes to assumptions is that leaders are jumping too quickly to solutioning as opposed to truly probing deeper into the thing that they may have heard and they just immediately start like frenetically writing down in a notepad of like all the solutions? Yes, it absolutely is. And it's even something product can fall into the pitfall of as well. We we might hear the problem and immediately jump to a solution for it. And then think that our solution is the best solution. And that's where collaboration and involving like your technical team comes into play because you can present 
here's the problem we're trying to solve for the customer. They are trying to deliver real-time insights to the executive team and make decisions on the fly. So we need a report that's going to be sent to them on a daily basis. Sure. Like, you know, and what we tell engineering is we need this report built. And they think, okay, we're, you know, we're going to build the report for you. But if you come back to what problem they're actually having, a report may not actually solve it. And so you have to truly understand not only the problem that we're solving for the customer and how painful it is for them, but how they're going to use whatever the solution is, and then bring that to a broader team that's going to help you think of the best solution. And so where I've seen product teams not fail, but a pitfall of getting to the best solution is by thinking that we can figure it out on our own without bringing in and collaborating with the other teams. Because, you know, the our IT team, we, no one calls it IT anymore. They're engineers. Like they're brilliant people that right. can figure out how to solve problems in the most effective way, leveraging technology. And so by bringing their minds into it as well, it, it really drives the best solutions. Are there any unintended benefits that you found from kicking your team out of the four walls of the company and into a conversation with the client or into a conversation that's not in like the engineering space. I think there's always these jokes about engineering teams. It's like, oh, it's always dark. And it's like (laughs) you could barely barely see your engineer on the Zoom call because they're like in their cave, you know, coding Mm -hmm. out. How do you bring them into the light? Have you seen other side benefits? Oh, yeah. I think the one that comes to mind initially is empathy and a, a like a bigger reason for the work that they're doing, a, a better purpose. When you bring either product or engineers into those conversations, they can actually hear an individual expressing, you know, on a daily basis, this is what I'm dealing with. And look at how frustrating it is to have to click 25 times and then wait five minutes when you know, that's wasting my time in the day that I could get back and do more valuable things. And so they build empathy that helps them be more creative and put more purpose behind the role that they have as well. But also, I think they ask really great questions and things that we may just take at face value, they'll dig and they'll dig a little bit deeper and then they'll be more invested in the outcome too. So mm, all those are, are huge benefits. I, I found particularly with engineers, you know, sometimes they're just cautious to be on external calls. They don't, it's not their primary role. They're not used to it. And so they think, oh, just let, you know, BD do that or product. You have your user research calls or your customer discovery calls. And you can kind of assuage some of that concern if you say, you can just observe, or if you have a question, absolutely, you know, bring it up, but we're going to drive the conversation. We just want you here. So yeah, you can really, really good. actually hear from the customer directly. And that's always, I think, you know, eased any anxiety over it. And then they, they do start to see the habits and how those conversations go and start to drive better conversations from there. Too. I think that's so good. You're, you're, you're giving them permission to play a role so that they don't feel uncomfortable, like in somehow they're expected to be on a stage or do something that's outside of their wheelhouse and that they can contribute in their natural ability. They're not having to be somebody else on this call. We actually want you here because you are who you are. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. When it comes to those insights, Oftentimes, there can be this tension 
especially within leadership team or within product roadmap discussions about what should be a priority based on the insights that have been seen. And that oftentimes requires a rejiggering of priorities or a shifting or maybe even a delay of certain priorities because another thing comes in. How have you found in your role as chief product officer, how how are you able to convince or what are some of the things that you're looking for to get buy-in on those types of pretty seismic shifts? Because oftentimes there's a full commitment to a product roadmap and everyone's got their task lists and their sprint plans and their epics. And it's like, what? Sam's here to blow everything up? Ugh. That's like the million dollar question, right? <clears throat> and right, ultimately, right. You, you may not be able to keep everyone happy all of the time, but you can usually at least retain their respect and trust if you do a couple of things. One of which is consistent communication and communication at the right level. So what matters to them? What doesn't matter to them? What do they want to be in the know about? And how how much information do they want on your decision-making process overall? You know, some people are, they're just going to explicitly trust. We know you have limited resources next quarter, whatever you can get done, great. Others, they may feel this, especially on the sales team, this extreme pressure of we can't, you know, breach this new market opportunity because we don't have X, Y, and Z. And so the pressure is, is mounting. They may need more information and really understand how did you prioritize this? Why did you say yes to this? Why did you say no to it? So by having good communication and really understanding what they need and listening first and then responding, I think that's a, a key to it. But I've also shifted over the years from focusing on long-term roadmaps to focusing rather on what we're actively working on. I think it's a an issue when internal stakeholders or especially external are asking for and so focused on a long-term roadmap, say 24 months out. That means your current product may not have product market fit. If they're so worried about something that they can get in 24 months, you've got different problems. Either maybe you're not serving the right market or you need to do major shifts to your product now. But like that is where I've seen some of the biggest pitfalls is they're thinking about this huge shift out in the, the future. That's where these shifts are going to happen. But if you can start to both, I think, visualize and start to surface and draw more attention to the things that are actively being worked and the value that you're getting out of the either up next in development, actively in development or done, everything starts to shift because they start to see progress. They see the value from it and they keep their eye on the ball of what we can actually deliver now, rather than trying to sell this future vision and things that are going to change out into, you know, 12, 24 months. So what we've done, but it works well for our business and it may not work for everyone, but we have a long-term roadmap, but we don't surface it to the business that often. It's something we use as kind of our, our guiding light or product strategy for the future that's driving shorter term decisions, but it's going to tweak and iterate as we learn more information and as our business changes and the market changes and everything else. So we've got the long-term roadmap, but then we set quarterly priorities as well. They may not all be delivered and released within the quarter, but we say, here's the things we want to focus on this quarter that you guys should be expecting updates on and some progress. And either if it's research and discovery related or actually product development. And then we have our board that shows the active work. And that's where we spend the most time saying next week, you're going to see a release for this new feature. 
that gets people excited and that actually gives them something tangible to work with. But it's a huge shift from organizations that are more long-term focused and that's where they put you know, their attention. And that's where you get frustrated too, because who could have guessed in 2020 how you know major things were going to change? And every year since then, you know, we've had major changes in business strategy and economy and everything else. So it, you can't predict the future, but the closer you get, the happier everybody is too. Yeah, I feel like the pandemic in some ways was, I mean, it's always hard to say the pandemic was good because there's so much that was bad about the pandemic. But if there was one good thing that did come out of the pandemic is that it forced a lot of companies to wake up to the needs to truly respond to external stimulus in a way that maybe only a handful of truly successful companies are really doing and documenting. It's like, holy crap, we all got to wake up. We all got to do this. Um, When it comes to shortening the product cycle, when you're talking about roadmaps that are more within view within the quarter or two quarters, to you, have you found that the value of that is that you're able to teach and show the team quick wins and that they can collaborate and they can achieve great things? Or is the value more of being able to just launch something that's complete, even if it's at an MVP level, to get feedback from the market, quickly iterate, and that that is a rhythm that you're teaching? Maybe it's both, but I just wanted to know what, from your perspective, which do you think is more valuable? Mm -hmm. I think they're so intertwined. So I would say both, but MVP is probably the predominant driver of trying to deliver value quicker. Because when you are thinking of things in terms of MVP and not just this like monolithic, huge design product, you can two things. One, get it out to market and get feedback really quick so that you can iterate. And two, you can start delivering value on it. Because when you're waiting and building something that is going to be so golden after 18 months, one, you probably missed the window for when you're going to get the most value from it. Two, you're waiting 18 months to actually derive value from that. So if you can get something out quicker, not only can you potentially start gaining revenue or potentially more users, but you're going to get really rich feedback that's going to going to iterate as well. And it's very hard for teams, not just product and engineering, but to accept MVP because you will always have more that you can do with a product. And so it's a culture shift to be okay yep. releasing yeah. something that's MVP. Yeah. And, I mean, what is the yeah. adage? If you're not embarrassed by what you release, then you release too late. <laughs> and so many things don't ever get released at all because then priority yeah. shift and then you wasted a lot of time on that. Well, I think back to both your and my time at Bravo, and I will keep names out of this, but I keep thinking about that culture and that context because I feel like in some ways the engineering team and the product team was desperate for their own wins. They were desperate to see, we can do this. Like we can achieve these small things because things were so Herculean. They were so large. It's like, oh God, we're this 24 month mountain is in front of us. And every time we're six months up that mountain, we decide to climb another mountain. <laughs> it's, it could be hard for a team that's in that Sisyphean battle of rolling the boulder uphill to want to come to work and be engaged. And, and I think that that learning how to win and the MVP cycle is so key to, to breaking people out of that. Cause it's so, it's so easily calcifies. I, I remember back to that time and 
I do. I have a deep sigh for, you know, the, the work yeah. and the effort and, and then probably the frustrations of the team as well, because when I think back to it, we also weren't celebrating the wins. It was like one thing got done and you immediately thought about the next 10 things that had to get done. And we weren't focused on what we were actually producing and doing well and what incremental value we could add because we were thinking of things so large. And that's what I've broken out of in really the last few years is being able to demonstrate wins for the team and have the team feel like the work that they're doing is valued and actually driving value for the business as well. And that they didn't have to, you know, wait for 12 months and then immediately rush into the next thing because they spent so long on a project, they're now behind on the next one as well. So it's a huge shift and that can be exhausting for teams and really demotivating. You you mentioned cross-functional teams, like getting them to truly collaborate in ways that they may not see on a regular basis or roles that they may not interact with on a regular basis. Maybe it's somebody outside of the reporting structure, but you're trying to break them out to work with somebody new. Do you have any stories or any any background on just the value that you've seen firsthand of being able to break people out of their traditional roles that they're playing and deliver on behalf of a client? Yeah. Absolutely. I think regardless what role you're in an organization, but especially in product, collaboration is so critical. And something that I think is one of the biggest drivers of a product manager's success is being able to understand the needs and the business objectives of their other key stakeholders. And the only way they can do that is by one, learning, but listening and being involved in their business. So your product manager, to be good, like they need to understand your balance sheet and what matters to the business from a financial perspective, 100%. To market, yeah. what's the unique selling proposition, who's our ICP, like all those things that should be a balance between those three commercial teams, but marketing is driving it. And so they should be sitting in those and hearing the same things, but they also be, should be sharing out the insights that they're learning from customers and conversations. So it's a constant, very collaborative cycle that works well if you create an intentional cadence for it. And if you're not, I've seen, you know, probably the opposite where you do really well at first, you learn everybody else's business, you understand their objectives, but then you start, and especially Zoom, I think is a curse of this where <laughs> you hear that they're talking about finance and you tune out and you go multitask and you're sitting on Slack and you're doing something else. And then you hear, oh, product or engineering and you your ears perk up and you start listening again. That's like one of the greatest mistakes I think we can make because when we stop listening to what matters to everybody else, we start to insulate ourselves again and go right back to the problem that we first talked about, which is making internally driven decisions. But it's even worse because now we're making them within the confines of our team versus the at least the entire organization and what matters to the business. 100% agree. I am constantly, constantly surprised at how few individuals understand the revenue strategy of the company that they work for. <laughs> I'm like, how do you think we keep the lights on? Like we're, we're, not, we're not here to build products for product's sake. We're not here to just make sure that there's a great user experience. Ultimately, we're here to do something for our core persona, our core market that yeah. solves their problem and that we can make enough money that we can keep solving that problem. Yes. Is oh, 
I, I, I think one of my biggest frustrations I've ever had with team members is when they say we have no metrics we can own. That number, we don't own. Finance owns that. That number and sales number, we don't own that. Sales owns that. We can't, we can't determine who the sales team is and you know how they're out there prospecting or having consultative conversations. We can only own what this product is. Like, wrong. <laughs> it's so wrong. We may have other people throughout the organization that are impacting the numbers that should matter to us, but we ultimately own the success of our product, which is going to include revenue targets. It's going to include user adoption rates. It's going to include availability of your product, all of those numbers matter. And so if there's anybody out there that's thinking like there's no numbers that product should specifically own, I would argue that. So it's <laughs> it's hard to not feel like you're on an island when you see that disconnect. How have you helped people that you're seeing like, oh my God, why are we, why is there willful blindness at certain things right now? How have you drawn connections that maybe people are missing or get them to see the light. <laughs> One of them is by bringing in the others that they may think do own the number. So in that scenario where it's pretty typical to, for a product manager to maybe naturally be averse to owning revenue targets associated with the specific product that they own, bring in marketing and bring in sales that are directly tied to leads generated for that product. And then ultimately sales that are closed and help them have a conversation that is you know, mutually inclusive of the different ways that the teams are going to impact that number, because there's no sales team out there that would say that the product doesn't matter to hit their sales target. And there's no marketing team out there that's going to say sales don't matter or the product we're offering doesn't matter. So when those three parties can come together and and talk through that and even voice it, you know, there's some been some reservations about how we can directly contribute to this number and what we should be tracking. What do you guys think? like open up the dialogue. And then some of it's just creating a scorecard and saying, you know, ultimately, here's what I'm going to hold you accountable to. So I want you tracking this and I want you reporting it to me and delivering insights to why you think the numbers are a certain way and what we can do about them. One of the words that is the hardest to learn to say as a leader is no. How and I think you've always been way better at this than me, Sam. You are able to say no with a much more pleasant tone in your voice than me. I become the asshole when I'm saying no. <laughs> it might be more pleasant. It's just hard to consider it to be in my vocabulary. But it <laughs> but why is it so important for you to say no specifically? to maybe customer requests, because I think that's oftentimes the challenge when you're talking about aligning what sales is seeing, product needs to execute against, and maybe marketing needs to articulate. You know, when you throw in a request or multiple requests that are all over the place, there's a natural urge to kind of want to say yes to those things because it's like, wow, it's our biggest client or, hey, this is a a uh, new industry vertical. And if we say yes to this, it'll open up all these other opportunities. And maybe saying no is not the right approach, but what are, how have you wrestled with those sticky situations? Oh, it is maybe naturally, especially for people pleaser personalities, 
easier to say yes, but the downfalls and the ramifications of it, saying yes all the time are so much greater. I think the way to protect your yeses and nos, the greatest though, is by having a really solid framework for decision-making. So there's so many, you know, prioritization frameworks and road mapping tools and things like that out there, but the inputs that are driving those tools and the, and the frameworks is what matters the most. And so if you truly understand your market, understand your customers, know what your competitors are doing or not doing or what they're going to do in the future, you know your users and what their problems are and how they're adopting or you know maybe not leveraging your product, and you understand your business and the actual product and the metrics around it itself, that drives such better decision-making. And all of those tools and the frameworks can actually work with confidence. If you don't know all those other elements that should be driving product strategy, your yeses and nos aren't going to be as well trusted because you don't have the data to back it up and you don't have justification. But if you can stand behind your yeses and nos with conviction and with data and with reason, people trust them a lot more. But I think one of the other huge ramifications of saying yes too often is how frustrating it is as an organization and to customers and how much it dilutes the outcome. So if you're saying yes or yes, maybe later, it's still on this list. It still has to get filtered through the rest of the priorities. Everyone gets overwhelmed that there's way too many things on there that I can actually get done. And so they lose focus and there becomes a lot of noise. But when you can reduce the noise and say, here's your top two, three things. Here's the justification and reasoning for it. Here's the value that we believe we're going to get for it. Here's how we're going to measure the value. Here's the reasons we said no to the other things. Everything kind of just clears away. (laughs) Everyone feels better about it. You have justification to go back to your customer and explain that to them. Internally, people trust and respect that. I used to either say yes or maybe like yes later. Yes, maybe later. I'll stick it on the backlog and I'll think about it. Sounds so tempting. It's like it's a way to win win it both. (laughs) You're like, I'm just gonna hold stave them off for a little bit. But most recently something happened where a customer asked for something. And initially I was like, you know, I can understand the value for that. And I'm kind of like going through the decision making framework in my head for just something that was smaller, then realizing how much effort it would be for us to implement it. And I was like, well, there's no way we're doing this initially. It's not a priority when you stack it up against everything else. And I said, go throw it in the backlog. And 15 minutes later in the conversation, I was like, hold, (laughs) take it out of the backlog. We have no intention of actually doing this. And so why frustrate a customer by saying we might do this? So it's always in the back of their mind. They're always going to be asking about it. And every time they ask about it, you're going to say, oh, it's still in our backlog. It's going to frustrate them. And then they're going to lose some trust or confidence with you rather than just saying, we evaluated the three requests that you had in our last call. Here's the two that we've prioritized and they're on the roadmap and we can give you an update for when we do them. The other one, we decided not to prioritize. We really appreciate your feedback and we'll take it into consideration if it persists as a problem, but this is what we're prioritizing. Everyone feels better about it, even if it's hard <laughs> for people yeah, to yeah. But when you back it up with reason, at the end of the day, most people are going to understand. Yeah, I think that that's a, the challenge between saying yes and saying no when there's a request that comes in from a client is the challenge between being transactional and being truly collaborative with the client where the client feels, you know, I'm sending a request. I want either an answer yes 
I definitely don't want the answer no, but I definitely want to see that there's some like reaction from you of being the consultant or the partner. Mm -hmm. But if it's simply just a yes or no, there isn't a moment for an ongoing dialogue. There's not really collaboration with the client. And I think, you know, being able to explain and describe the reasoning or at least listen past the request to get to the heart of the pain that may be driving at uh, the request being so specific. Because what I found is that, and talked this with a couple other people, that oftentimes requests are coming in based on previous solutions or previous things that they have seen in the market. So the only way they know how to frame their pain is through the lens of what they already know, not actually solving the root and the real job of what we're doing to, to build a valuable solution is to uncover more the root pain and yeah. how can we unpack that more? I, I think that's spot on, you know, oftentimes, and I think I mentioned this, they'll come with, here's what I think we need to do. But when you can peel back the layers and say, explain to me why, what's driving you requesting this? What's, what do you want the outcome to be? Like, what's the problem associated? We most recently, not most recently, but at one point had a request to white label our solution we ultimately did it because we understood what they were trying to accomplish. But when we started to peel back, why do you want this white labeled solution? At first, we had reservations because, you know, they said we want it to match the original ad that's going to then take them to your landing page. We'd like the landing page to be white labeled so it matches the ad, and matches the overall campaign that we were running for this specific clinical trial. And so initially, I think, yeah, that makes sense. But when you started to peel it back and part of our reservation was they, their main concern was drop-off rates. If the look and feel changed dramatically between the campaign at different points, would people drop off because they're seeing something different that looks different? You know, people's trust of the internet and giving their personal information is obviously dwindling consistently. And For so, good reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that makes sense. And we were able to actually look at the data, understand the drop-off rates. And then, you know, you should, when you put in the white labeled solution, you should be looking at those data points against the old ones to either say, here's why we should keep white labeling the solution or probably not worth a week or two of development time to do this on a, on, and it needs to be case by case. That's really good. Yeah, I think that the, the challenge is always different depending on the industry that you're in, the team that you have, and it's never the same challenge. Like you could have the the right response to almost every one of your clients and you come into another quarter, it's like a buzzsaw of like a request that catches you out of the blue and you're like, oh, how do we handle this? The last question I wanted to ask you about when it comes to prioritization is the dreaded backlog. You You even mentioned it, like don't let the backlog be this mechanism you can use to avoid a difficult no or some sort of a promise that people have in the back of their mind. What have you learned that you wish maybe if you could go back, you would do differently or you constantly are telling your team now, hey, this is how we should manage and evaluate what is inside of the backlog? Yeah. Well, evaluating is step one. I've seen some teams just continue to dump into the backlog and then it becomes so large you can't even sift through it. Hundreds 
hundreds upon hundreds of tickets that you're like, I think that's in the backlog. But then how are you actually driving decisions from the backlog? You're not. You might just have it there and it's almost like a placeholder. And so cleaning it up and doing refinement on the backlog is really important, but it should it should always be through the lens of what matters at that moment and not just thinking back to, well, I originally put it in here because of X, Y, and Z. You have to ask yourself, does that matter still? Like, is it as of now and where we're planning to go in the future, does that problem still matter? So keeping it clean and refined is important. But also- are you are you reviewing Sam that those priorities? Are you delegating that to somebody on your team that you feel has a cross pollinated understanding of the business needs? Because even just what you said, like, hey, you have to evaluate what is needed today. That is different definitions depending on who you're asking to dive in to a yeah. backlog and review things. So our product owner owns the backlog. They own the priority of what we're going to, at the ticket level, develop for the upcoming sprints or whatever cadence we work in. But they get their direction from the product manager who gets the product strategy and vision from me. So it's really all of us have to understand ultimately what our, what's our product strategy, what's our product vision, why do we have these things on the roadmap as they are? And what's our like decision-making framework at the highest level? But then the product manager owns the success of their specific product. And they ultimately should be understanding all those elements I talked about with the customer and the market and all of their needs to determine at the strategic level what we're doing. But usually those are at the epic level. So here's the couple of things that we need to prioritize at kind of the portfolio epic level is how I would state it. But the product owner on our team then owns the actual associated development tickets that associate with those epics. So if they know these epics are what we need to prioritize in the next couple of quarters, then they can help refine the backlog. But no one should be insulated from how we're driving to the right decisions. And everyone should kind of have that shared knowledge. That's great. If uh, you were to give advice to any leader or aspiring leader that's inside of this product, marketing, sales, Bermuda Triangle, and what they should either start doing or stop doing to be more effective, whether that's more effective personally, maybe that's their team around them being more effective. What what piece of advice practically would you would you give? I think my number one piece of advice is to put yourself in the shoes of your key stakeholders and leaders across the business and just colleagues truly understand their business. You know, the one of the common questions I ask, and maybe it's a little like inappropriate or direct, but it's like, what's, can you imagine like, what's their bonus tied to, you know, what actually matters to them from a goals and objectives and what's keeping them on a quarterly or annual basis from actually achieving those. And I'm not saying that because we're driven by money, like that actually isn't the case, but people tie and executives should be tying bonuses to business outcomes that matter the most for the business. So if you roll up all the, the goals that are tied to people's bonuses, those should be the most important things to the business. So if you understand what are all of those goals and outcomes and what's preventing them or causing them pain from accomplishing them and or pain in like the current day-to-day of just operations and business as usual, then you can step into their shoes and understand how you can contribute or hinder them in cases which is going to break some of that trust and respect across the organization and help them drive to better outcomes because that relationship so are yeah. so important, but trust and you know really understanding and feeling heard and listened to is is critical. 
Yeah, I've always felt like when you are a hallmark of whether you're listening well is whether you can start to speak their language. Mm -hmm. It's like learning a completely different way of communicating. It's not just you're hearing about the things that they care about or value. It's really about, like you said, stepping into their shoes, yeah. learning to use the same language that they do. I think oftentimes people are hung up when you can't speak the same words that the business uses to determine what is most valuable or what really matters versus what's nice to have. Yeah. And, and that builds confidence in the person that you're trying to work with that, that you do see them because you're using the same vernacular that they do to explain the problem. And some of that can be learn just in conversations. Sometimes it's just worth going out and getting an extra training course and go to market strategy or developing a unique selling proposition or, you know, how to have do consultative selling. Like those are all things that are really valuable if you're not in marketing or sales and you're a product person in this example. Yeah. And maybe that's even a colloquialism for getting a margarita with the person. <laughs> hang out. <laughs> exactly. That's Get right. Train, your job. Training is good. And also margaritas for happy I will hour. buy you a margarita if you. <laughs> that's right. One last question. What are you currently listening to or reading? What's on your, what's on your playlist that you're inspired by? I am getting a refresher on. I've read it, but I love it. Empowered by Marty Kagan. He was one of the members of the Silicon Valley product group. He's written another book. I think it's called Inspired, which is for more product managers. Empowered was built more for product leaders. And I just think it's a really refreshing take on product leadership. And anytime I start to doubt the good practices of product leadership and I start to like, you know, step back or become insulated, it, it's a really good reminder to get out there. And one of the good, like really beneficial learnings in there is how to collaborate effectively to determine the, the value. Is your product going to be valuable? Is it going to be viable? Like, is it something that'll actually drive business value? Is it going to be something that's feasible and can actually get done uh, and usable? Something that people can effectively use and all of the different people that are needed. But those are the four things you should be looking at when you're driving actual product development. So it's just good, like refreshing reminders. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'll have to put that on my list. Is there anything in that book? I often see like when I find a book that I love to read, there's like moments where it's like an arrow hits you like right in the yeah. heart. You're like, I'm not doing that or I should be doing that. That's a great reminder. Is there anything specifically in that book that are like zingers for you where it's like you read it, you're like, Ooh. Um, there's reminders in there about tracking data and tracking metrics that are sometimes very hard to get at, but the importance of doing that as you're making decisions and also iterating things, I think those are zingers sometimes. Like so you can roll out a feature and forget to track if anyone is actually using it. It could be an easy mistake to make. Yeah, yeah. Those little reminders like that. It's like, ugh. I know it's so hard, especially when you feel like when you feel good about the launch. It's like we don't need any data. Yeah, my feelings are the data. <laughs> it was great. You see the smile on my face. That's the data. In the moment, it is good, but a year from now, are you actually yeah. should you? I drive any business value. <laughs> I, I hear you. That's the zinger. Yeah. Sam, thanks for the time. Appreciate the conversation. Always good to hear you know, what you're working on. And just, it's awesome to see you moving your team forward. It's great. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode. This podcast is brought to you by Onward Insights. Onward empowers teams to uncover hidden bandwidth, deepen customer retention, improve user engagement, and drive conversations that lead to new revenue. Learn more at onwardinsights.com. Thank you.